с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Now on with the show. I'm pleased to have Kirill Tomov on the podcast to talk about the role Soviet orchestral musicians played in the cultural Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Late in the show, we'll also listen to some classical music and have Kirill explain how it changed as a result of Soviet and American collaboration. Kirill Tomov is a professor of history at the University of California, Riverside, where he specializes in the history of Soviet music and its place in Soviet culture and society. His first book, Creative Union, The Professional Organization of Soviet Composers, 1939-1953, provides the first-ever in-depth analysis of the professional organization of Soviet composers during the Stalin period. His new book, which we'll talk about on today's show, is Virtuosi Abroad, Soviet Music and Imperial Competition During the Early Cold War, 1945-1958. Here's Kirill Tomov. Let's start by having you talk about the origins of, of your book. What led you to write a study of Soviet classical musicians and the Cold and Cold War cultural competition? I've always been interested in Soviet music and musical life. I'm an amateur musician myself. And so the whole time that I've been thinking seriously about, about Soviet history, one of the, the, the main lens that I've used to think about it is music. When I first became Uh, interested in thinking about Soviet history, I thought back to a time when I was a study abroad student in Leningrad in 1990, and I would uh, spend much of my time in Leningrad going to concerts every night, and I was struck by how different the audiences in Leningrad were compared to the rural Arizona that, in which I grew up. And also, and it just sort of was in the back of my mind something that would be worth exploring. So when I um, entered graduate school, started thinking about a dissertation topic, it was explaining that, that, that um, struck me as, as significant. So in my dissertation and then first book, um, I tried to use music as a lens to shed light on some question of larger significance to Soviet history. And in that case, it was professionalization, elite formation, and so forth. Um, but even while I was working on that project, I was intrigued by the international dimension of Soviet music. And in fact, in a sense, thought of myself as one of the audiences uh, for that uh, for that international dimension. Um, so while I was doing my dissertation research, I would gather materials on Soviet efforts to project their influence abroad through Soviet, through music, sort of along the way. Oh, here's an interesting thing, take down the source. Uh, occasionally, if I had time, I would take detailed notes, but mostly it was just gathering leads for, for some future project. And I eventually came to think of those efforts, those efforts to project Soviet music abroad as essential to constituting a cultural empire with global ambitions. In other words, it, I think music contributed to the Sovietization of Eastern Europe. I think it contributed to the Europeanization of Central Asia. And I think it contributed to Soviet efforts to compete with the West in the Cold War. And uh, at some point, it, it dawned on me that actually all three of those projects were happening at exactly the same moment. Um, and they either began or they accelerated at, at the same moment, which was the late 1940s. So I began thinking about um, 
doing research on those Soviets who crossed national borders or who managed border crossing of others in service of that imperial construction. And it was the musicians and the bureaucrats, administrators, and so forth who managed uh, the travels of those musicians that, that struck me as particularly interesting. So I developed an idea of culture and music and musicians in particular as circulating along three sets of circuits of cultural flow, one within the Soviet Union itself, one between the Soviet Union and its emerging empire, especially in Eastern Europe, but potentially elsewhere, and one between the Soviet empire and the West. So I initially thought I'd write a single book about that, and I've started following those leads that I'd gathered while doing my dissertation research, sort of tracking down the way that people moved across national borders you know, along all three of those circuits. And I started writing this, this book about these three sets of circuits. I initially thought I'd split it along the lines of the sort of entire international stuff, so Eastern Europe and, and the competition with the West. Um, but that was really not workable um, because the, the sets of questions that I was interested in asking of the two different kinds, what I think of two different circuits outside the Soviet Union, were considerably different. So it made much more sense, I thought, to split it along the lines of um, the sort of emergence of the Soviet cultural empire in one project, was actually the next project I'm working on, um, and the cultural Cold War. So it's, it's one of those stories where it emerged through fits and starts out of a long, ongoing interest in the way that uh, music can be used as a, as a lens to sort of focus attention on uh, questions of much larger uh, significance. I like to I like to do that. I like to have a, some sort of big questions that I know I'm not going to be able to further, but to dig down into the sort of archival, um, some specific questions that I can get uh, sort of archival research on. And, and music has proven the lens that's that has been most useful for doing that for me. Well, let's get into some of the issues that you bring up because they, they do connect to larger questions of, of the period. And, and the first one, of course, is the importance of the cultural Cold War and the overall global standoff between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, there, I know there is a lot more work being done now on the cultural aspect of the Cold War in the contest between these two empires. Uh, how important is this cultural Cold War to the overall military, political, and ideological struggle? Well, I don't think it'll surprise anyone to learn that I think it was extremely important. And I think it was extremely important in part because it was one of the very few arenas in which the superpowers squared off directly, as opposed to operating through surrogates, indirect confrontation, uh, and so forth. So it provided opportunities for each side to define itself for a global audience. And crucially, I think, to struggle for uh, influence and, in a sense, attractiveness among that audience. You're right that there are a lot of, of studies recently on the cultural Cold War. I think it was an area that was long neglected as people really focused on the strategic, the political, the economic uh, competitions and, and, and so forth. And some of those studies, I think, uh, go so far as to suggest that in the end, it's best to think of the global Cold War as something that can be ultimately reduced to a cultural conflict because of the fact that there was never, you know, it never entered a uh, sort of direct military conflict. And, um, and so forth. I don't go that far. I think that the, that the, those other aspects of the Cold War confrontation between the two sides are, are still really important. But, but I do think that culture was a critical field of confrontation, both because it was direct 
and because it was the sphere through which both sides really sought to define themselves uh, against one another and for the the rest of the world. Um, and and it was culture that usually provided the the content of that appeal. Um, and it wasn't necessarily an appeal that either side explicitly highlighted as as the main as the main thing. I mean, both were were concentrating on their own respective sort of ideological definitions, but culture was the language that they used to uh, demonstrate that. And I think that's true of, of both sides. And we've recently uh, had some uh, some really interesting studies of the American side of the cultural cold, which I think are uh, are, are really interesting. And, and mine is one of the first of the of the Soviet side. Yeah, no doubt. I think I think more people are shifting to this and looking at those questions and and really looking at the the Soviet Union in a global context rather than an isolated barricaded state and looking at the cultural flows across borders. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. That that there's a huge amount of attention just in the last sort of maybe 5 years of the the Soviet Union's effort to to extend its influence into the developing world, the decolonizing world. And, and I think that was an important dynamic of the Cold War that we're still just learning about. This book is also about globalization. And most treatments of globalization are really about the expansion and domination of capitalism. And, and you do have some element of that in your book in the sense that the Soviet Union is con- confronted at many points in, in conforming to the logic of capital and the logic of the market. But you also argue that the Soviet Union played an important role in this globalization. How does the Soviet Union fit into the story of globalization in the second half of the 20th century? I, I probably should have said this when I was uh, when I was talking about why I wanted to write the book uh, in the first place, and because part of it was, I guess, an irritation that almost all of the theories and other studies of globalization that I had read simply ignored the fact that in the period of their studies, which is usually the at least the second half, but usually the, the last quarter of the 20th century. There was, in fact, an alternative vision of global integration that wasn't just in circulation, but was in direct competition with the capitalist system. That's always the focus of those globalization studies. So it's something that that has always sort of has, has irritated me. I guess is the right is the right word. So I think one of my goals with this book was to consider how the Soviets' global project related to the the capitalist one, and. I concluded that the cultural Cold War generated a complicated dynamic between competition between the two systems, but also integration of them. And that dynamic was one whereby the Soviet side accepted the rules of competition that were suggested by the West, excelled in those direct competitions according to those rules. But in sphere after sphere, it something that sort of surprised me, but seemed to be the case in every sphere that I looked, engaging in that competition caused the Soviets to integrate into legal regimes or financial systems that had been designed by the United States and were dominated by the United States. So the series of visible Soviet successes masked a much quieter, uh, but eventually more decisive integration of the Soviet Union into global systems. That story is, of course, one that's completely compatible with the gradual global domination of capitalism. It just absorbed the Soviet Union like it absorbed everything else. But I think there's there's more theoretically another way in which the Soviet Union contributed to globalization. 
And it's something I discussed briefly in the book's introduction. I think that encounters between Soviet musicians and the West allowed individuals on both sides to draw on their different understandings of national or ideological belonging, while simultaneously contributing to the universalization of things like cultural technologies, cultural media, and financial structures for enabling cultural display in particular. But I think uh, cultural display is, again, just one aspect of what is, a, that's the aspect I study, but I think it's probably, um, if we studied other aspects, we'd see it, we'd see it there too. So I think the Soviet vision itself, and also the fact that it was in competition with the United States, contributed to the emergence of the transnational imagination that made globalization possible. So I don't think the Soviet Union was actually as marginal to the globalization process and the imagination that made globalization possible, as globalization has generally been conceived of in the past. Now, you look at this through music, and you've stated that this has been one of your, your intellectual lens in trying to understand big questions of Soviet history. And now with this book, of course, the, the world itself uh, in the latter half of the 20th century, why is music a good lens to look at this dynamic between competition and integration in the cultural Cold War? So I think there are two main kinds of reasons that music is a useful tool. Uh, for looking both at, at competition and integration in the cultural Cold War, but also questions of, of so in Soviet history. But I'll, I, I guess I'll concentrate on the on why why the cultural Cold War. Um, so the first has to do with the particularities of music as an art form itself, and the other kinds of reasons have to do with music's place in Soviet society. So first, the uh, music music as a as an art form itself. It's a peculiarity of music, I think, that it's assumed to have a universal intelligibility that allows communication in ways that language-based cultural forms like literature or even film uh, really can't do. So this is the uh, the the famous music is the universal language kinds of, of uh, I think, assumptions that people make about about music. So that universal intelligibility, or at least the assumption of universal intelligibility, made it uh, makes it an art form that communicates particularly well, or is understood to communicate particularly well across national, linguistic, and cultural boundaries. And then, so that's one aspect, one thing about music that makes it uh, particularly music itself that makes it a particularly good lens. A second is perhaps in contradiction to the first, though, that abstraction, music's abstraction, makes it really hard to affix a concrete meaning to music. If you want to affix a concrete meaning to music, you have to usually do it through something like lyrics or through writing about the music. Um, and a lot of musicians in the 20th century preferred to not do that, to, to leave their music uh, to communicate merely in musical terms. Um, so that the sort of um, flexibility of the way in which meaning can be attributed to music is another thing that I makes it, I think makes it interesting to study in international dynamics. So that's the first set of reasons. Like what, what about music itself makes it, makes it valuable? And I think that that's it. But there are another set of reasons that have to do with the place of music in Soviet society. Music played an especially important role in Soviet society, um, probably not as important as literature, for example, but, but, the, but culture in general and art culture in particular uh, were extremely important to the Soviets, and music was, was part of that. Musicians themselves uh, were especially elite members of Soviet society, especially privileged in material terms. And with that 
privilege came some special attention, um, some exposure to disciplinary campaigns and so forth. But I think musicians were at those sorts of dangers a little less than, than rice work. So there are some ways in which music, music and musicians are typical of the Soviet culture more generally, and some ways in which they're uh, exceptional, but nevertheless, crucially important. So some, some of those things that, that about which they're typical include I think most crucially, uh, the fundamental logical role of the arts in communicating the socialist realist mode of perception to a larger population. And the Soviets were also atypical, or the mus- musicians were also atypical in, in other ways because of that. They were, and that combination makes them especially interesting. Uh, way of doing it. And I think that in when it came to this international dissemination of Soviet culture, again, was supposed to play this this role of of communicating the socialist realist mode of perception to not just the Soviet domestic population, for which it's much more famous, but an international population as well. Uh, let me ask you about socialist realism for a bit in the sense of how does the socialist realist aesthetic, how is it communicated through music? Because in, in painting, it's it's pretty clear. In literature, it's very clear as well. But in, in the attempt to portray the seeds of the future in the present in music, seem, because of its abstractness, seems quite difficult, or I, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, no, it's that it, it's true. And that particular aspect of socialist realism is is in fact difficult to convey without concrete meaning with, with the sort of abstraction of it but um but there's a way in which the soviets uh, of the socialist construction of the socialist realist canon and the socialist realist well part of what the socialist realism was meant to do was to appropriate specific traditions of the of both the soviet the the russian imperial past and the western cultural legacy and I think music made that point or was amenable to making that point particularly well. And it's something that the Soviets did even in the programming of the virtual squad, which was to have them play uh, a, a wi- widely recognized masterpiece of the Russian or of the, of the Western musical tradition, something like a, a Brahms piano concerto or a, a Beethoven violin concerto or something like that. And then demonstrate the sort of Soviet bona fides of, of being completely comfortable with this common Western cultural heritage uh, and then play some piece of the Russian tradition that was already well known in the West, um, almost always a Tchaikovsky concerto or for his pianist, they would play a Rachmaninoff concerto for um, perhaps um, that, that laid claim that the Soviets were the, the, the proper inheritors of the Russian tradition. And most audiences in the West were perfectly happy to believe, to believe that. And then, and then the Soviets would, would perform a Soviet composition, a new work, uh, often dedicated to the performer. So Shostakovich dedicated a, uh, a violin concerto Oystrakh, and Oystrakh often performed that concerto. And that made the implicit, but all it's so clear that it's almost explicit claim that, look, we're the best inheritors of the Western tradition, we're the best inheritors of the Russian tradition, and we're the best developers of those traditions. Listen to this to this new music. So it, it p- posited uh, the Soviet Union's path to cultural development as the one that was the most healthy for the entire Western tradition. And you know, critics in the West didn't buy that last bit. Uh, they were perfectly happy to buy the first two components of that, but, they, and the, but their reactions to the Soviet performances of the, of the Shostakovich or the Prokofiev concertos, it was almost always those two, maybe a little Khachaturian, was to say, oh, technically brilliant, but 
eh, the piece not very creative, not very interesting. It doesn't it doesn't quite live up to the performer's uh, wonderful technique. So I think that that's that's part of it. Now within the domestic uh, sphere, the vision of the the future society emerging in the present often was communicated through the adoption of works by uh, composers who were meant to signify the national republics and, and the cultures of the national republics uh, in particular. Um, Marina Frolova Walker has a, a new book which is just about to appear on the, on the Stalin Prize. And I think uh, that book really makes a, the one, a wonderful case that the Stalin Prize, which everyone understood as me, was meant to codify a socialist realist canon, uh, regularly relied on compositions by composers from the national republics uh, to fill out that, that canon. And so a future world inhabited by a multinational but flourishing socialist culture uh, was something that that, that, that codification of, um, of socialist realism in the Stalin period meant to do. That canon, though, as it emerged in the late Stalin period, wasn't as prominent in the way that the Soviets projected themselves outside the borders of the empire. It did within, the, within Eastern Europe and so forth, but that's not, not, not something I talk much about in this book, and I think it really wasn't, it didn't play as central a place in the sort of socialist realism for the West that it did for socialist realism within the empire. We we all know about the famous showdowns between the United States and, and the USSR and hockey and in the Olympics and other sports competitions. Uh, but music, as you show and, and talk about, was also an, an arena of competition. Uh, how did these international competitions shape Russian music nationally and internationally? Well, the short answer to that question is that preparing for international competitions uh, shaped music education institutions and the competitions themselves became a measure for evaluating the 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 uh, the, the Soviet um, education system. Um, and just as they were in sports, uh, chess, and so forth, the Soviets really proved excellent at identifying talent at a young age, developing that talent through extremely rigorous training programs, and then honing it in high stakes and exceptionally competitive domestic contests. And then at the end of that, uh, of that process, they were able to deploy this talent in the form of, of, of cadres of exceptional performers internationally to great success. It, so there are a lot of, I think, parallels in the, in the sports training programs that we know a bit more about and the music education system. And music competition as a measure of success, and these international performance music competitions as a measure of success in particular, I think caused some peculiarities to develop within the within Soviet music as a whole. And one of those is a, that there was a disproportionate focus on developing violinists, pianists, and cellists, and not quite as successfully vocalists. And that's something that in, during my period, there's a tremendous amount of hand-wringing about how they they can't uh, manage to develop vocalists as as well as they have their violinists, pianists, and, and cellists, and 
you know, the searches for Italian pedagogues who can come and, and help with training of, of Soviet vocalists. So much so that it was actually a long time before I actually sat down and listened to some of the most prominent Soviet voices of the late Stalin and early Khrushchev periods. And when I did, I was expecting to hear mediocrity and I was shocked to hear how fantastic they were. And so I... <laughs> So it's one of those things where the where my my source base uh, led me to think I was going to hear one thing and I heard something you know very different that maybe the vocal talent uh, wasn't as deep um, as the sort of leads at the Bolshoi but the but boy were they good so but they but they weren't as internationally acclaimed uh, it's true as the vinylist pianists and the cellists were but I think that that development developmental focus on those few instruments at the expense of other orchestral musicians in particular, not to mention other musical forms, like especially popular musical genres and so forth, led to a, a sort of peculiarity in the Soviet system that you can you can sometimes hear and you certainly know about and that their popular music was not as, as successful as their, as their classical music performers. Strictly, the maturation of the system of international music got war contributed to of a globally standardized musical canon and also to shared standards of value across the the cold war divide after all in order to compete you have to have you have to agree to a set of common rules and those rules turned out to apply both to uh, repertory and to how performing musicians should be evaluated and soviet domination of those competitions led to a soviet style that i think came to eventually dominate expectations of instrumental soloists even today. There's an uh, emphasis on technical perfection, which sort of brilliance of technical mastery that is is typical of the of all of these, you know, wave after wave of competition winning Soviet performers. To the extent that by the 70s and 80s people were all, all over the place, mostly in the West, but not just in the West, also in the Soviet Union were, were worrying about that worrying that that a mus- musical personality was being eliminated from the development of of new musicians because of the emphasis on technical perfection. Um, so there's been a lot of, of ink spilled uh, in worried discussion of this issue, but I think nothing than hand wringing because it's still what we expect. Um, and competitions aren't the only thing that create that expectation. Uh, recordings that can be you know, touched up and so forth also contribute. But I think that preparation for music competitions is, is really one of those things that creates that, uh, that expectation. Um, and then there's the global canon. Um, also, there's, uh, I think, uh, they're interesting, a point that I, that I didn't make explicitly in the book, but I think that because competitions wouldn't be considered internationally prestigious unless they did explicitly pit contestants from the two spheres against one. That is a point that I did make in the book. Um, but I think one of the pursue and maybe should have um, was that this global standardization of value was only really developed for performers, not for composers, with the result that, but here's the thing I think that I've recently been thinking is interesting about this, is that precious few Western high modernist pieces and precious few Soviet socialist realist compositions entered into this global musical canon during itself. A few more have since the end of the Cold War, but during the Cold War itself, I think that the most recent compositional developments in both spheres didn't really make it into this global music. Because if there was going to be a lot of you know, uh, modernist music uh, required, the Soviets wouldn't participate. 
if the Soviets wouldn't participate, the the competition would lose a great deal of prestige. So was it a lot of, uh, if I understand this correctly, was it a lot of reinterpretations of of classics? Exactly. Yes, and there and because the this uh, this system of competitions developed not just in an international environment but also in a, in a national one. I mean, countries who would put on these these competitions was usually to popularize music written by composers from their own national heritage. Uh, so the Chopin competition in Warsaw was meant to uh, make pianists play Chopin. The uh, competitions in Brussels were meant to popularize music of, of Belgian composers and so forth. And one of the central components of the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow was to, first of all, co-opt Tchaikovsky once and for all for the Soviets, but also to make sure that contestants could play other less well-known pieces from the Russian classical heritage. And some of the members of the, the juries in the first Tchaikovsky competition really worried about this. Um, it was Oistrakh and uh, Giliels in particular worried that putting some of the Russian classics, 19th century Russian classics that weren't in the global musical canon on the contest program would unfairly disadvantage people from other countries. And there was a lot of back and forth about about this during one of the discussions of uh, how to put together the program. And at the end of this discussion, uh, Shostakovich, in, in fact, intervened and said, listen, the point of this competition is to popularize Russian music. So we're going to popularize Russian music by making people learn it. When our con contestants go to other countries, we have to learn their music. Well, they have to learn our music when they come here. And, and so it was. So it was, it was about mastering a recognized canon, but it was also about expanding that canon to a larger range of national, of, of national composers, usually not of the 20th century, though. Now, one of the issues of this integration and competition was in the 1950s, several Soviet musicians began touring in the West, um, but some didn't, uh, even though there were efforts to have them tour. And, and you focus on the different experiences of two, David Ostrak and Ratislav Richter. Uh, talk about these two and their different experiences and its impact on the global classical music scene. The, this is one of the things that I, that I, I sort of especially liked about uh, about one of those chapters was the possibility of contrasting these two now universally recognized masters of their respective instruments. Because in the period of my study, well, they were recognized as masters of their respective interests. Their, the way they were presented internationally by the Soviets was very different. So Oistrakh was an ideal uh, Soviet musical ambassador from the perspective of the Soviet establishment from the 1930s when he won international, the first sort of nascent international competitions in Belgium and so forth, to his first international tours. Oistrakh's stunning virtuosity, still unmistakable sound. You can play you a recording of, for violinists, I'll be able to recognize his sound uh, immediately. That made him... Uh, you know, a superstar even before he went on tour. And the same was also true of Emil Gilyels, who had a really parallel. One of those two was always one of the first to, to tour abroad. They, there was a high demand for them, and whenever they toured, they were universally successful. And so, for example, in, in the book, I talk quite a bit about Oistrakh's first tour of the United States, in which he arrived to a tremendous amount of excitement and that excitement was was realized in his performances. And the the one of the sort of fun things about doing the research for the book was reading all of these tour these reviews in the American press of his tours in the in this fifty five fifty six this first tour because a, a lot of American critics simply couldn't come to grips with how good he was. There was a 
uh, critic for the Chicago Tribune, for example, who just couldn't find the words to describe how impressed he was, and at one point said, "If he stays any longer, we're not get, we're going to run out of words to describe to describe this guy." And part of what impressed what impressed him was that Oistrich was scheduled to give an orchestra hall recital. It sold out instantly. It was a tremendous success, and so much so that he agreed to do a second unplanned recital the next day. And for the second recital, the expectation would have been he would have just repeated the program from the first one. But instead, he performed an entirely new program. And so it wasn't just the, the extraordinary mastery that he, dis- that he displayed in the recital. It was that he could just do two of these back to back. He had that much sort of at his command. So they, people were just uh, flabbergasted. And they were with, with Gilliel's as well. So this was, he was, I was struck in Gilead being the Soviets point um, that they were the, that was, they embodied the point that the Soviets had to make. Richter was a completely different story. When Gilead's was on tour, uh, people would say is Gilead's is, is miraculous. And the response was from the Soviet, from not the Soviet officialdom, but from, yes, Gilead's is great. But if you think he's great, uh, wait till you hear Richter. And audiences in the West had been introduced to Richter in the late 40s through recordings that were made in the Soviet Union and released internationally. And so they were aware already of how tremendous he was and constantly asked for him to come on tour. And the Soviets constantly didn't send him on tour. But the cultural ministry, the Soviet cultural ministry tried to get him to go on tour, but they were rebuffed uh, by the by the foreign ministry. Is that correct? Did I read that correctly? You you did. And it was actually less the foreign ministry who also would have, would have been very happy to have uh, Richter go on tour. But uh, actually made an experience. Um, and it, it, I don't have any KGB sources, but uh, it's in the Central Committee discussions of whether or not of all these requests coming from the Ministry of Culture to send him on tour. So usually the way these things go is that the Polypio or the Presidium had to sign off on everybody's international travel during my period. The Ministry of Culture would come up with a, with a travel apparatus, which would uh, vet the case and write a short, usually report for decision higher up the hierarchy. And the Central Committee reports on the Ministry of Culture's attempts to send Richter abroad are really interesting because they report the Ministry of Culture says X and Y, that it would be a good idea to send him abroad. Here's this opportunity that they are aware of. They want to take advantage to get him to get him there. And what the ministry says, that any his performances abroad would make, uh, would be huge successes for the Soviet Union. Propaganda success, uh, demonstrate the magnificence of Soviet culture and so forth. Um, that said, he shouldn't go. And it's, it's rare to read this kind of report. Usually you can tell what the conclusion is going to be by the first half of the document. And in, in these cases, you couldn't. Um, and it turns out that what, ha- what intervened, no, it's too risky to send the gun. Um, his father had been executed by Soviet forces in the early days of World War II uh, in Odessa. And his mother had seen uh, Nazi occupation and then had left with, uh, with the um, evacuating uh, Nazi troops at the end of it, was in em- living in emigration somewhere. Soviets uh, fought in West Germany, um, although they're uh, sure about that. And so that, that sort of family background was made Richter a risk. So they were, they gradually, in, in my period, the 40s and 50s, they sent him more and more often to Eastern Europe, but never to Western Europe. They didn't until at the, after the end of end of my period, 1960, I think, was the first time he he went first to Finland, uh, and then and then to the West. And so this 
the way I talk about it in the book is that I think this there's a there are many ways in which the Soviets integrate into uh, they also always want to exert a almost theoretical Soviet control over those processes and Richter embodied the his immobility during this time of increased mobility for Soviet musicians really em, embodies that uh, preoccupation with control to the extent that it undermined the Soviet point it just demonstrated to Western audiences that, yes, uh, the Soviet system might enable the Boistrox and Gilliels of the world, but it also constricts the the Richters. And that uh, did work at, it worked directly into American presentations of itself as, as a place for cultural freedom. Uh, and the Soviet Union is one that repressed it. Now, uh, let's listen to some of the music that you talk about, and in particularly around the, the standardization that you've already mentioned that came out of the trans-imperial exchange between Soviet and American musicians. Um, and we'll listen to three pieces. Uh, first is Davies Oistraks playing Dvorak's uh, Violin Concerto in A minor, Opus 53, with Kirill Kardashian and the USSR State Symphony Orchestra in 1951. Uh, and the second one will be Oistrak playing again at the Tchaikovsky uh, Violin Concerto with Eugene Ormandi's Philadelphia Orchestra in 1959. And then lastly, we'll listen to a performance from 1976 of Gidon Kramer playing Mendelssohn with Yuri Bashmet and the Moscow Philharmonic. Why don't you give us a sense of what we should be listening for and pay attention to uh, before we listen to these pieces, and then we'll we'll play them and then have you comment and and speak a little bit more about the, their importance and and what should we pay attention to? Okay, that, that sounds great. So the, the first one, so the the thing that I want to hear is the transformation of the sound of the Soviet orchestras in the first and last last recordings. And there are two areas in which you can hear what I'm what I'm hoping to hear in the in the comparison. Uh, one is the ensemble playing of the of the strings. So in the first recording, oh and the other is the intonation in the winds. In the and the reason I I, I started thinking about this was I was struck by the fact of the orchestra tour to the Soviet Union. And when he was talking to people in the, in the, the Ministry of Culture after his tour, uh, said in Philadelphia to come, it'd be good for Soviet orchestras to hear what a real orche- what real orchestral playing sounded like. Uh, and I was struck by that because the Americans are amazed at what Oistrak sounds like, but it's a difference between solo playing and orchestral ensemble playing. And and so I think you can hear what Oistrak was talking about in the juxtaposition of the first two. So in the first one there in the opening um listen to the way that the the strings in the orchestra not the not the soloist attack their lines and you can hear um a little bit of raggedness so that they're not all starting and stopping at exactly the same time and there's also uh, some of there's one violin i think in particular sort of stands out from the general texture of the the orchestral playing, and then when the winds come in, they're they're not in tune, and so that you can hear that it, it comes across, I think, as a sort of raggedness. And and then in the second one, the Ormody recording, listen to the way that the strings start exactly, precisely together, and blend uh, sort of perfectly before the uh, before the soloist comes in, and then when you hear the third one, listen to to again the strings and how whether they sound more like the Philadelphia Orchestra of the of the middle recording, or more like the the other. So the the third one is that it's a Moscow Philharmonic, um, and I Afia than they do like the 1951 
uh, USSR State Symphony Orchestra. Okay, well, we'll listen to these. We're going to hear about two-minute clips of each one. So uh, here's the first Oistrak playing the Dvorak Violin Concerto. Okay, so why don't you say again what was going on here that we should note and then say again what we're going to hear in the next one that we should pay attention to, just so listeners will have an idea. So in, in that one, the especially, so it's the it's the entrances of the strings, the, the unison, not unison entrances, they're not obviously playing the same notes, but that don't start all at the same time and that are... The mix of the strings is is not as transparent as what we'll hear in the next one. There are especially after the the so there's the entering entering passage. You can already start to hear it then, but then the, in the in the that we just heard, uh, then Oistrakh plays that long line which ends on the extremely high note, and then the orchestra comes in with a da da da, and that da 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 is like da 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 da. Um, it's it's it, the, the sort of raggedness of it, and then there are some intonation uh, issues in the in the wind. So they're just that's not playing exactly in tune. Now, when you listen to the to the next one, listen to how precisely together all of the entrances in the orchestral strings are, and then also how smoothly balanced uh, they are yeah. in comparison to that sort of raggedness we just heard. Okay, so here is Oistrakh again playing Tchaikovsky in 1959 with Philadelphia Orchestra.
But now we're going to listen to Gidon Kremer playing Mendelssohn. And what should we now? We should can think about the, the last one we listened to in comparison to this and then think back to the first one and how different it is. So here is Gidon Kremer playing Mendelssohn with the Moscow Philharmonic in 1976. So, th so these three examples suggest a standardization of, of the playing. So like by 1976, you have a very well put together, I mean, from my kind of layman's interpretation, it, it sounds like a very unified piece of music rather than in the in Oistrakh's first, the violin really stands out away from the strings. That and part of that is the is the difference in the in the in the different pieces. Uh, the actions themselves were played. Um, and it's that it's and that's that, that the, there are other aspects to the the global standardization of orchestral sound that people have written about and and sort of bemoaned that you can't hear in these recordings. So there's a the way that the that oboe sound, for example, gets standardized over time. Even my I'm a horn player, and the the I can hear horns from the middle of the century, and they represent. And by the end of the century, you can't. Um, that's not not captured here. And there are so there are other things at play like like recordings, the standardization of recording technology. Um, you know, orchestras hear other orchestras on recordings and they say, oh, we can do that too. But I think that the recordings that the Soviet musicians made on tour with Western European and with American orchestras contributed to the process of the recording standardizing sound. It's a gradual thing. It's certainly not any, not something that I'm uh, that's a, noticing it is not original to me. But, uh, but I think, uh, I haven't heard anybody else claim that 
that, that it's the recordings that the Soviets made with their Western counterparts really, like really contributed to this to this process. And I, and I think it did. Yeah. And it certainly brings in your emphasis on the Soviet participation and the, this globalization. So now you have kind of global standardization of, of classical music performance that they've also contributed to. And that's transformed the way they play. And finally, uh, we haven't talked about this issue of integration and how the Soviets did have to conform to mechanisms of the market and mechanisms, logics of capital, how they entered into copyright law. And, and particularly the use of lawsuits in the West to prevent the use of Soviet music in, in films without permission, particularly anti-Soviet films. And you speak about here this Cold War film, The Iron Curtain. So talk a bit about those processes. The copyright story was something that was the, the first chapter of this book that I wrote. And I wrote it uh, initially as a as an article that I didn't know would be would be part of this book. And I even I wrote it at all because I kept coming across while doing research on other on other questions, this sand curtain. And I saw it once and I, I noted that it was there. And then I saw it again. I'm like, oh, this is weird. I took notes on it. And then I went back and looked at the other thing. It was different stuff. I realized that there were that there was that something had happened that I had never heard of, which was the which was an effort by the Soviets to stop called uh, the, that was about a defector from the Ottawa in, uh, in Canada, one of the first post-war films. And so something that, that followers of Hollywood consider one of the first or the first anti-Soviet film of the, of the Cold War that had a soundtrack entirely comprised of music by Shostakovich, Prokofiev, Kajsturian, Yaskovsky, Soviet composers. And the, and the thing that initially interested me about it was that the people who were involved in, in developing the Soviet strategy to try to stop the release of the film were the first in the United States and eventually in France. And the, it was these friends who were first asking for, please send me something that says that Shostakovich and Prokofiev object to the use of their music in this film. And that request gets ignored, I think, because Soviet people don't understand it, um, or they don't recognize it as a priority or something. So they simply ignore it. But then they realize that this film is is going to be released, and they they go to court to try to stop it. They lose in New York, where the case is heard, not surprisingly, and the film is released to American audiences. Leftists in the United States organize... Um, demonstrations where the clashes police get involved but it, it on it plays and i think none of that is a big surprise what's interesting though is that the the report that the the, the friend in the west writes to the soviet union says if you deal with copyright uh, in a particular way the outcome of this court case would be different in europe and especially in britain and france and it's the Soviets hear that, and then they turn before the, the negotiate with a French publisher to give that publisher the exclusive distribution rights for Soviet music, with the agreement that he will that the publisher will then file a lawsuit against 20th Century Fox to stop distribution in France. It works. The, the there are the same demonstrations in Paris that there were in New York. Those are not successful. There are also demonstrations in Brussels and all over Europe. So they're they're multiple. They're mobilizing against the film on multiple fronts. But the demonstrations don't work. What does work is the claim that they're a violation of the Soviet composers' uh, moral rights. So it's an intellectual property rights complaint uh, claim that doesn't have much standing in American courts, but does in uh, in French courts. And eventually, the it's it goes on appeal, and the French courts decide on 
behalf of the French publisher and confiscate copies of the film. And film, the distribution of the film all over Europe is stopped. So it's a, a really peculiar case in which the Soviets actually manage in, for lack of a better word, censoring an American Hollywood film. But so it through Western stru- institutions and structures. Exactly, exactly. And so their alternatives, let's let's organize the working class to, ar- to argue against this film don't work. But integrating into a legal regime that they're not yet fully part of does work. That was Kuril Tomov, professor of history at UC Riverside and author of Virtuosi Abroad, Soviet Music and Imperial Competition During the Early Cold War, 1945 to 1958. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also find past shows on iTunes, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye.